Okay, so before I get started, I'd just like to pray before we get going. Uh, Father God, just blessed to be able to come and fellowship together this morning. Lord God, it is a privilege, just like Chris had mentioned, to come into your house, to gather as a people united through Christ. Lord, I just pray that as we get into this message, you would give me boldness, Lord, that I would speak the truth, uh, Lord, that I would be loving in my approach as well, that they would see your love and your heart, Lord, Lord, I just ask that you would just walk with us now as we go through your word, that uh, each one would leave this place today having heard from you. Lord God, I just ask that you would bless this time together now. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Okay. So if you could turn with me uh, to Genesis and have that ready. Genesis chapter 6. Go ahead and get there before we get going. Genesis chapter 6. And we'll start in verse 5. So I can't think of a better day to preach about Noah and the flood than today, really. The winds, the rain, the gloom kind of sets it up as a nice little backdrop. So, you know, I was, I was looking up different statistics recently about some of the most important events that the world has ever known through the eyes of people here in the United States of America. And things like World War I, World War II, women getting the right to vote in 1920, the atomic bomb drop in 1945, the Holocaust, man landing on the moon, the Berlin Wall, the assassinations of President Kennedy and Lincoln, certainly events like 9-11. There was a huge list of things that people thought were significant and memorable. But nowhere on any list did I see mention of a global flood. And it's interesting, that impacted all of humanity, even those that were on the boat, maybe even more so those that were on the boat. So as we look through this text, I want you all to refrain from thinking of this same old story that we've heard time after time. To me, when I was a kid growing up, if you've grown up in a Bible-believing church, oftentimes you can take the story of Noah as, oh, yeah, there's Noah on this boat, and he's just having a good time with these animals. And, you know, I there were toys and songs and videos and all this stuff. I never thought of the seriousness of the flood. And... You know, I, when I look at these toys per se, it just, for me, that's what it was. It was this, it was this story, and it was almost a feel-good story, really, of Noah and these animals floating along and just having a good time. And sadly, many of us, we've softened the message of this text. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's because we're not... Uh, willing to face the hard truths of what happened during the flood. Maybe it's because we don't want to be offensive to others. Nobody wants to be considered offensive or to give offense. I think that's natural for us not to want to do that. But I'll be honest with you, God's not primarily concerned about whether we're offended by something he said or done. And I think as we go through this text, we'll see maybe it's we 
that should be concerned about things that we say and we do, would they be offensive to him? So I want you to turn with me, Genesis 6, 5 through 13, and 17 through 22. And I read and teach and preach out of the NLT. So if you're in the NSV or ESV, and if, or if you're in the New King James or King James, you're going to be a little different than me. Okay. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart, and the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry I ever made them, but Noah found favor with the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. And on to verse 17 says, Look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die, but I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and, your, and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, male and female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And be sure to take on board enough food for your family and for all the animals. So Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded. So reading that text and hearing that text is challenging, to be honest. It's probably not your typical Thanksgiving weekend text. And to be honest, as I was trying to come up with a sermon like Justin said, it was four months ago probably we, I decided to do this. I prayed about this for months. What would you have me to preach? I thought maybe something with thankfulness, maybe something with giving. We've got Thanksgiving. But I kept coming back to Noah's account. And as I settled on that, the floodgates opened, pun intended, really. I mean, as I prayed about these things, just so many things God was sharing with me, just helping me to understand and pointing me to different texts. But I love how God uses his word to tell us hard truths about himself and us. So people often say, you know, God is so mysterious. He's hard to know. You know, we have finite minds, and there's truth in that for sure. But there is a way to get a good start on how to know him and what he loves, what he hates, what he desires, what he's called good, what he's called bad, and that is to read his word. And, you know, I tell you, when we look at this text, he's not hiding anything from you or I. 
He doesn't leave us guessing about what he loves and hates and how he'll deal with things. Anytime that I read the Bible, I find it helpful to ask, what is God telling me about himself here? So what does God tell us about himself in this text? As I read through this passage, it impressed upon me that God wants us to know that he is a God who sees. In verse 5, we see him say, the words say, Now the Lord observed the extent of people's wickedness. Then on in verse 5, he says, He saw that all their thoughts were consistently and totally evil. Verse 11, The earth had become corrupt in God's sight. Verse 12, God observed all the corruption in the world. Verse 12, he says, He saw violence and depravity everywhere. Repeatedly, we hear God observing and seeing men. He takes in the lives of everyone in this room. He's not disinterested in you or I, and he's not someone who will be distracted either. You know, when I think about oftentimes when, I, when the kids were young, after church on Sundays, we would go to the local Dairy Queen and we would get those five-buck lunches. I don't know if you remember those or not, but you get a sandwich, you get a fry, you get a drink, and you get an ice cream, all for $5. Well, in order to make it fair for them, they gave you a bag of fries. It was about that big. So I would sit there, and we'd be eating, you know, and I'd do the old, hey, look at that, because I'd be about out of fries, and my kids would grab a few fries, oh, yeah, yeah, do what I wanted to do. I distracted them so that I could get and do what I wanted to do. Now, as simplistic as that is, honestly, I think it hits home for most of us. We love to point our finger at other people's spiritual brokenness, hoping that we can distract God from our own. Look at that guy over there. I'm not as bad as he is. You know, he's cheating around on his wife. Meanwhile, I'm indulging in pornography. Or we love to touch on the sin of homosexuality. Meanwhile, we are, people have accepted sleeping around outside of marriage, divorce for any reason. We love to pretend that God can somehow be distracted from our sinfulness by pointing at other people's spiritual weakness. So, I was looking through some texts and Hebrews 4.13 kind of drove this home for me. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all of creation can hide from him. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. This is the God to whom we must explain all that we have done. That makes it pretty clear. There's no distracting him. Everything that we have done will be laid naked and exposed before his eyes. To know that he observes you and I should be sobering, to be honest. What is it to observe something? Think about that for a second. For me, as I was processing this, one of the best ways I could think of it was I thought about Nick Wanniger. I mean, when he went through his issue, being held overnight in the hospital, being observed, I've been in that situation. You go into the hospital when you have a significant illness or something going on, 
They say, we think we need to hold you for observation. Now, what's that look like? Do they hand you the TV remote and say, see you in the morning. We'll check you out then. Here's some warm, fuzzy slippers. No, not by my account. It seemed like every hour they were in there shining their light in my eyes, in my mouth, in my ears. Do this, do that. Checking your oxygen saturation, doing the blood pressure, giving you medicine, changing IV bags. And then about the time you fall asleep from that, they're doing it again. They're waking you up and they're doing it again. It is a probing and penetrating look when someone is truly observing you. And let's be honest. As attentive and compassionate and experienced as doctors and nurses can be, with all of the electronic gadgets and gizmos that they have, sometimes things get overlooked. Not with God. Not with God. Similar to these doctors and nurses, God will take a probing and penetrating look at us. But the way he observes us is clearly set apart. Some doctors may say, I have this echocardiogram. I can see how your heart functions. God would say, I created that heart and I put it in you. And not only do I make it function, I can see its desires. Some doctors may say, I have this PET scan or this MRI, CT scan. I can see your brain in every abnormality. But God says, I've created you in my image. And I have given you this mind so that you can know me. I see your secret motives and your innermost thoughts. I am observing you. And if we're all honest, he has seen in each of us things that are evil. Worldly, selfish, we've been greedy, bitter, spiteful, many immoral things he has seen. But what gets me is why people who claim to love Christ care so little about what he sees when he's observing them. I, a lot of you know I work over in Hawesville, Kentucky. It's about 45 or 50 minute drive from my house. And for the last 12 plus years, I've been driving over there. And they had a real problem with people speeding through this stretch right in front of one of the gas stations over there. So a couple years ago, they put a police officer on that main drag and put him, pretty much he was there every morning sitting there. And it was interesting. I was so used to like this NASCAR mentality, people just flying through there like crazy. And after that cop car showed up, it was really took me back about how many compassionate, patient, uh, really, really cautious drivers showed up there on that stretch. And I'm one of them. I, for 50 minutes, I would drive and, whoa, I got to get going. I'm flying. And then that two minutes... In that stretch right there, I would check my speedometer multiple times, make sure the seatbelt's good, hope I put my sticker on my registration in the back. Why? Because I knew someone who had authority over me was observing me. And yet, it's interesting that people will change their behavior knowing they're being observed by a local policeman 
the same folks who claim that I believe that God is all-knowing and he's observing me, their lives are still marked with the same recklessness. Maybe we don't care because we don't understand how God deals with sin. So I want to look back at Genesis 6 and see what God observed from the people of Noah's day first. In verse 5, the Lord observed the extent of their wickedness. He saw that their thoughts were consistently and totally evil. In verse 11, God saw that the earth had become corrupt and filled with violence. In verse 12, God observed all this corruption. Everyone on earth was corrupt. What did he see? Corruption, violence, depravity, and evil. That's what he observed. Now, does this sound like any place that you know? Could it be an accurate description of the world that we live in? Maybe the country we live in, the city, the community, maybe even the household that you live in. Were the people of Noah's generation really all that different from the generation we live in today? Not long ago, I heard a pastor ask a question of his congregation. I thought it was very meaningful. And I thought, well, I'm going to ask it of you. He said, I'm going to read you this arrest record of a group of people, and I want you to determine, am I describing the men of the NFL or the NBA? And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So he read this. Here are the records that he read. 29 cases of spousal abuse, 7 cases of fraud, 19 cases of bad check writing, 117 of these individuals had bankrupted at least two businesses, Three were arrested for assault. 71 had such poor credit they couldn't get a new credit card. 14 drug-related arrests. Eight arrests for shoplifting. 21 were current defendants in lawsuits and 84 cases of drunk driving. Now, when I heard that list, I thought, that has to be the NFL. There are not enough men in the NBA to get in that much trouble. But I was wrong. It wasn't the men of the NFL, and it wasn't the men of the NBA either. This pastor had pulled a fast one on the congregation. That was the arrest record for the United States Congress. That's the group of people who are tasked with drafting laws that we're to follow. The kicker is those statistics were from the 90s. How much further into depravity and perversion have we fallen as a country in the last 25 years. There has been a seismic shift in nearly every aspect of our culture, most notably the sexual revolution. We have embraced all kinds of perversion. We excuse sex outside of marriage and divorce. We normalize homosexuality. We've made transgenderism trendy. We are now moving towards the acceptance of polygamy. Even I've even heard the softening of the offensive pedophilia, calling it minor attractive disorder. Last year, there were nearly 500,000 murders globally, 700,000 reported rapes. Pornography generates $100 billion a year globally. Violence runs rampant. Turn on the news for five minutes. 
There's a shooting, a school shooting, fights. You can't turn on Sports Center without a drunken brawl by fans, not the players. The FBI recently conducted a huge sting called Operation Cross Country, and over 250 women and children were rescued from sex slavery. That's a real evil that is going on in our world. And one last thing. Aaron, will you click on that slide for me? So as of this morning, at about 8.30, that was the number of worldwide abortions this year. Now, I was looking at these global statistics to try to understand what our world looks like currently. And I pulled up some stats, and this thing popped up on my screen, and I clicked on it just to give you some background. And this was a couple of days ago. And it was at 35,260, I think is what it was, when I first clicked on it. And I could not help when I looked at that to see that ticker click, 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 click. Every one of those is a life. This is the magnificent work of God being formed in the mother's womb, but yet that number's growing astronomically. By January, this time next year, that number will be 50 million. Are we really that much better than the people of Noah's generation? When God looked upon the men and women of Noah's generation, he saw violence, depravity, corruption, and evil. What does he see today? Now, I'm going to leave that question for you to process, but I want you to look with me at verse 7. How did he respond? The Lord said, I will wipe this human race I've created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, large animals, small animals that scurry along the ground, even the birds of the sky. Some of you are probably thinking, why did I get up on Thanksgiving weekend and come hear this gloomy message? But to be honest, this is what God gave me to preach today. And far too often, pastors step up behind the pulpits, not in this church, praise God. They step up behind their pulpits and they don't reveal the true character or the whole character of God. Over and over we hear people rejoice over God's love and forgiveness, mercy, grace, and we should. But the mischaracterization comes when we stop at that. When we say God's so loving he would never do something like a global flood. He's so loving he would never send anyone to hell. As a matter of fact, he is so forgiving and merciful, everyone's going to heaven. These are things that are making headway in churches and amongst our culture today. That is an assault on the character of God. And Genesis 6-7 clearly tells us that not only is God willing to deal with unrepentant sinners, he deals very seriously with unrepentant sinners. In Noah's time, the sin of mankind had so distorted the image that God had imprinted upon them, he said, I've had enough. And he didn't shy away from what he was about to do. Notice what he said. He said, I will 
wipe this human race from the earth. I will destroy every living thing. Does that sound like a spineless and puny God that so many people make him out to be? Does it sound like a God who doesn't have the stomach to deal with sin? This is the God of the Bible. He is loving. He is merciful. He is forgiving. He's gracious. He is kind and he is good. But his holiness and righteousness demands that he deals with each of us. Having full knowledge of all that we've done based on all that he has observed. It is tough to read about the people that died in the flood, but it's worth contemplating. Why? Why did this happen? How did their lives, these unrepentant sinners, begin to spiral out of control like this? It's something we should ask. And I think we gain some insight from Matthew twenty four thirty eight. It says, In those days before the flood... The people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time Noah entered the boat. Now you may be asking, what, what's that have to do with anything? Here's the connection. For 120 years, God had Noah building a massive boat. And during that time, he was going out preaching and teaching and warning of the coming judgment. How many listened? Only his wife and his children and their wives, not another soul. Matthew tells us that they were just too busy enjoying the finer things of life. The parties, the banquets, the weddings, they were taking Joel Osteen's advice and living their best life now. By the way, don't ever read anything Joel Osteen writes. But the most accurate way I could describe the people of Noah's generation is this. They were spiritually apathetic. They did not care about the things of God. They lived for the pleasures and the achievements of today and thought nothing of eternity. That should give each one of us pause as we look in the mirror. Spiritual apathy has marked an overwhelming majority of people in our generation, in our churches, and inside these four walls also. How else can we explain churches across the globe having to deal with a lack of faithfulness in attendance, in service, in giving? Do you set aside daily time in prayer with God in his word? Most people, if you're being honest, would have to answer, no, I don't. Now, if you lost your phone for an hour, you'd probably be frantic Oh my gosh, oh my contacts, oh this, I got that. Some people could go months not knowing where their Bible is. It wouldn't affect them at all. Spiritual apathy was what began this downfall for the people of Noah's time. And spiritual apathy has led us to be a culture that's growing in corruption, violence, and depravity day by day. We see it. It is not getting better. It is getting worse. Meanwhile, in the midst of our spiritual apathy, we have almost little impact on the world around us. The church has to wake up. 
Will we learn from those who lost their lives in the flood or will we follow down this strangely familiar path knowing full well how God dealt with their sin? Each of us should take inventory in our own lives asking the question, as God observes me, what does he see? Would it be pleasing to him? Would I find favor in his eyes like Noah did? Or is my life marked? by spiritual apathy, caring little for the things of God. Now, I've spent a lot of time talking about sin, judgment, brokenness, all these doom and gloom. I want to get to the other side of the story. For the repentant believer, the one who has truly trusted in Christ, there is a benefit. There are many benefits of being under the watchful eye of an observant God. We should consider the blessing that it is for those who have lost a loved one to the heinous acts of something like murder, those who have lost their innocence to an attack like rape, those who lost their livelihoods and their businesses and their incomes from riots and looters, never to be prosecuted, they can rest knowing that every perpetrator of every one of these crimes will never get off on a technicality. They'll never get off because there was no eyewitness to testify against them. There'll never be a bribe big enough to pay off a perfectly righteous judge. He will pronounce the guilty as guilty and the innocent as innocent. And as the judgments are rendered on that day of judgment... There will never be a sentence that's too harsh or too lenient. There will never be a plea deal because they won't be necessary. Everything that will be needed to prosecute and execute perfect justice will be at his disposal. He has witnessed it all. Perfect justice only exists in a world where we're perfectly observed. There's many benefits, but I'm going to touch on one last one. There is a beautiful reality that exists as we live under the watchful eye of an ever-observant God. And that reality is that you and I are truly known. On the surface, this may not seem like a real big thing, but consider with me what that means to be truly known. We live in a world that is full of the artificial and fake. Right now, we're probably all putting up artificial trees in our homes, artificial sweeteners and colors. We've got fake money and fake jewelry and fake flowers, and we've got all these artificial fake things. But we've got a lot of fake people, too. We're all guilty of it. We like to walk around projecting an image that we, th we hope that other people will like. Fake, superficial, surface-level relationship. There is a reason so many Hollywood actors and famous singers and famous athletes struggle with drugs, alcohol, suicidal tendencies. You can be the most famous, popular individual on the face of the earth, but they fall in love with the image of you on the screen. 
the image of you on stage, the person running the ball on the field. If no one knows you, if they don't know your hurts and your failures and your brokenness, no one knows the real you. But if you have a family or a friend, someone that knows all of these faults and failures, those are the most meaningful and lasting and deep relationships that you have. And if you don't have that, you are alone. No one knows the real you. So when they don't know you, everything is based on superficial. See, these relationships where we're genuine with one another, that's where love is truly given and received. And God has known everything about you. And 2,000 years ago on a cross, he made a bold statement saying, I've seen your sin. I've seen you fail. I know who you are. And I love you. True love only exists in a world where we're truly known by an observant, all-knowing God. And it is because of this we can know perfect love through Christ. I want to close with this. I told you I spent a lot of time praying through different texts and different things. And I kicked around whether I would share it or not. But I, I prayed that God would give me perspective. Help me to understand what was it like for Noah before, during, after the flood. And you know, I, as I prayed through these things, I thought about the perspective of Noah before the flood building a boat in the middle of the desert wilderness, no rain, everyone mocking him, making fun of him. He was going out preaching and teaching the wrath of God. No converts. No one listened. Everyone was evil during that time. Not a good time for a godly man to be alive. At least not comfortable. What about the time while he was on the boat or during the flood. I thought about that. On his boat, on this boat with his family and these animals in the most tumultuous storm ever known to mankind. It wouldn't have been a pleasure cruise. And think about this. For 120 years, he preached and he taught. Flood's coming. God's wrath is coming. Repent. Oh, where do you think when the flood water started to rise, these people went straight to that ark. It seems logical they would run straight to that ark and say, let us in. Please, let us in. We believe you, please. And if they couldn't get in, maybe they're holding their babies up. Please, take my child at least. door was shut by God even if Noah wanted to open that door and bring people in he couldn't and you know as hard a reality as that was for me it was the after 
that broke me up a little more. Honestly, I thought about it as the waters receded. I couldn't help but think as that boat grounded and Noah and his family came down. They tried to restart their lives. They'd have to plant food. They'd have to gather food. They'd have to start rebuilding. Considering the fact that the entire race, the entire human race, and every living thing had just died in a global flood, what did they encounter? This hit hard. Inevitably, it seems they would have encountered bodies of people, of animals, maybe neighbors, maybe old friends. It seems logical that that would have been the case. So it seems to me that there would have been a constant reminder to all of them about the seriousness of sin. Every time they set eyes on something like that, it had to be a very pointed reminder. But I also look at it and I say, every time Noah came home and he hugged his wife and his children, he had to have been reminded of the mercy and the grace and the love, protection of God. He saw fit to save them. And he has said in his words so many times, he has seen fit to save you. When we consider the bruised and battered and crucified body of Jesus, this should serve as a reminder for us of the seriousness of sin and how God deals with it, but yet the extravagance of his mercy and his love for each of us. He has seen fit to save you. Would you trust him to do it? Don't be like the people of Noah's day who came to the boat too late. This is an age of grace, and the door is open now. Come and see that the Lord is good.